This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features 100,000 titles, including Walter Isaacson's biography, Albert Einstein, His Life and Universe, narrated by Edward Herman, and Stephen Hawking's The Theory of Everything, narrated by Michael York. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Steve Mursky here. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Emily Anthes, author of Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beasts. So you also, uh, you have some interesting fish at home. Not anymore. Uh, Well, let's talk about what they were first. Sure. So uh, these are glowfish, and what's amazing about them is they're sort of the first official transgenic pets available on the market in the U.S. And technically, they're zebrafish, which look, as you might expect, from a fish named zebrafish. They normally have these black and white stripes. They're tiny tropical fish. They've been popular in the aquarium industry for decades. And also in the research lab. Yes, exactly. And scientists have doctored them by putting fluorescence genes into them. So all these Different kinds of marine organisms often naturally make fluorescence proteins that sort of allow them to glow under the right lighting conditions. But if you take, say, this jellyfish gene and put it into the zebrafish, suddenly what was a black and white striped fish becomes a neon green one. So they've made these glowfish in, I believe it's five different colors now, and they're at Petco, Walmart, five or six dollars a pop. It's really sort of amazing to me because it's the first real animal biotechnology product that's easily available and accessible to anyone. And that genetic manipulation is in the germline and would be passed on to offspring. And that's actually, they breed them. So after the first sort of few genetic modification, they just have regular fish farmers breeding the fish. Um, And so, yeah, I, I bought some. I bought six. This was maybe three years ago, and they were lovely. They were, you know, I'd heard all these crazy things about them because they were covered sometimes by the media in a way that made it look like the end was coming because (laughs) we had these fish. And so, you know, when I went, I actually couldn't find them at Petco at first. They blended in so well to some of the other fish they had there. It's like, which ones are the genetically modified frankenfish? But I, I bought some and they were they were fun. You can get, they actually sell special tanks because the they fluoresce the best under blue or black lights. So you can buy a glowfish kit that has a tank with these lights built in. So I had them for a while and they were nice. I don't think I'm a great fish farmer because they began to die off slowly. But I'll, my caveat is that I'm pretty sure that was my fault and not a defect of the fish. Right. This particular genetic manipulation really shouldn't have any widespread systemic effect other than the color. Right. And they, they did 
a fair number of, of studies on fitness and other things. And um, I believe they were slightly less cold tolerant than normal, mm. but that was the only sort of real difference they found. And we should point out, you know, this wasn't just scientists saying, hey, what can we do? Uh, let's make zebrafish different colors. Zebrafish have a really basic model organism role in embryology and, and other kinds of basic research. And the fluorescent protein won the Nobel Prize a couple right. of years ago because it enables you to follow development paths. In fact, I remember talking to a zebrafish researcher, it's got to be at least 10 years ago, who wanted to use different color fluorescent proteins to tag different parts of the developing embryo so that you could have a color-coded developing, hmm. developing embryo. You know, the cardiovascular system, because zebrafish are also pretty much transparent. transparent right. Even they have the zebra-like markings on the outside, but you can see their internal organs. And it, what, what the researcher wanted to do was have the cardiovascular system be developing in red hmm. and the uh, musculature be developing in blue. And, you know, so you could actually have your, your embryology students watch the embryo develop over the, it wow. develops really quickly in right. a couple of days. Right. And you could, you could watch it color coded, you know, so right. it'd be you know, really bring home the idea of what primary cells are then developing into which systems. So, the pet version is a is just a an outgrowth of all that actual basic legitimate research that has you know the potential to do a lot of good stuff. Right, scientists were creating these fish for a variety of reasons, as you point out, and these entrepreneurs just sort of came forward and licensed the technology to sell them as fish. But that's you know not why the technology was developed. Right. You know, when the when the regular news media gets hold of these stories, it makes it sound like, for one thing, the federal government is giving millions of dollars to pointy-headed lunatics <laughs> so that they can make, you know, mice that have eyes growing on their, or ears growing on their backs. You right. Know? And they, they, there's no context for it that indicates what it's good for. Right. So um, you've talked about how you're you know, the, the kind of conflicted feelings you have about this stuff because, you know, you you might be creating a line of mice that's going to have a pretty horrible life. The idea is to try to develop a, a model for a disease so that we can figure out how to deal with that disease in humans so that humans will have a less horrible life. Right. And that raises a lot of issues for a lot of people. And it's not just related to, you know, the the genetic manipulation part. But um, as you point out, you're not a vegetarian. Right. So. And neither are most Americans. And most Americans sort of as conflicted as they feel and as much as they love animals accept some basic use of animals in, in research. I mean, it's another nuanced issue where most people – you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to test cosmetics on animals, but would happily sacrifice a million mice if it found us a cure for cancer. So it's right. it's not an it's not easy to have these blanket ethical positions. Um, it's a nuanced 
problem. Right. And if you're growing animals to try to develop a cure for Alzheimer's, it's different than if you're growing them just to eat them. Right. And it's also different if you're growing them to try to find a cure for male pattern baldness, as you point out. Somehow that seems less urgent. Right. Of course, I... (laughs) If you're a (laughs) balding male, perhaps it's very urgent. But um, on the other hand, you know, the, the male pattern baldness mouse is probably not suffering to the extent that the neurologically disabled mouse is. Right. I mean, and that's why you sort of have to look at each case individually, which is hard because there's so many cases and say, like, in this particular instance, what are the benefits, what are the costs, and how does it shake out? Um, because it, the calculations won't always be the same. So Frankenstein's cat, was that a, a kind of an homage to Schrodinger's cat? It, it wasn't sort of inten- like an intentional attempt to reference it, but we obviously knew it would have that echo. It wasn't and, a deliberate connection, I guess. And are they doing anything with, uh, with cats in particular? We're trying to make that allergenic, uh, yes. hypoallergenic cat for the last 30 years. Right. I know they were trying to do it with regular breeding. Right. And um, some cloned cats... A glowing green cat with that fluorescent protein, but not as much. We're seeing some more in dogs than in cats. Let's I think. talk about the cloning, the, the pet cloning mm-hmm. thing. I mean, this is actually going on now where you can have Fido cloned. If you uh, have enough money. If you got enough. I mean, it's really expensive. Six figures, right? yeah. I mean, so you're talking at least $100,000. Right. And, um, you know, as some comedian said when uh, Wilma did uh, Dolly, Oh, great, a sheep that's just like other sheep. Yeah. You know? I mean, the very definition of sheep right. is that they're all the same. You know, you, you people are a bunch of sheep. Right. So so what would what would be the purpose? You're not getting the same animal. Correct. Back. You're getting a twin back. Right. And it's just like a twin. I mean, if you've met human identical twins, they have their own personalities. They have, even if they're identical twins, as clones are, they have subtle physical differences. It's it's not the same. I think the idea is that, I don't know, if you have enough disposable income that you can afford this and you really had a bond with your animal that it's, the best I can understand it is it's some way of sort of honoring that animal by having its DNA live on. There's something comforting about that. I mean, I don't, I don't really get it. It's not something... I would do with my dogs, Mm -hmm. but I think it can be powerful for some people. Is the money at least used to support some interesting research? It's really hard to say. I mean, these are the only two commercial dog cloning companies around are in Korea, and they're commercial companies, and I don't know how transparent they are. So I don't really know where the money goes. I suspect most of it goes to the companies and the, you know, more animal cloning, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. So uh, let me ask you to, to do the hackneyed thing here and um, predict the future, which is, <laughs> which is never going to be, uh, it's never going to work out the way you might think. But, you know, where, where do you think things are going to be 20 years from now in, in this whole, are we going to have just 
a slew of farm animals with human genes in them? Are we going to have our our secret platoon of drone insects that send us video back from the battlefront? Well, I think 20 years is not a super long time. I, I think we will see all of these technologies advance. We will see more animals producing pharmaceutical proteins. I think right now there's one of those drugs on the market. I think we'll see more of those for sure. I think cloning will become more mainstream, maybe not for pets, but it's becoming increasingly popular for livestock. Um, the international governing body that regulates horse competitions has just cleared the way for cloned horses to compete in the Olympics. So I think we'll see sort of sporting animals cloned. I think we'll see all that advance. I don't think any of these technologies will be quote-unquote mainstream yet. I think cloning will still be a minority of animals that are created. I think we might have a handful of GM animal drugs, but not a medicine cabinet full. Um, but we're definitely moving in that direction. And I think we'll see more and more of these products make their way out of the lab and into our actual lives, which is just starting to happen. The research has been going on for a few decades, and you're finally starting to see things come to market from that. So there's a chance we might have another secretariat that's that's a carbon copy of the original secretariat. Right. That's an interesting thing. You know, and in the book, I talk about some thought experiments about, you know, what about a Kentucky Derby where every entrant is a clone of a past winner or perhaps all clones of the same winner, you know. Now um, that's the whole enterprise is now worth it. Right. To see eight secretariats go off at Belmont. Right. And in some ways, that would be a great illustration of the importance of like nurture and right. training because they all have the same genetic gifts to start with. So what causes these, you know, it would be an interesting experiment, good spectacle. <laughs> that, I'm just trying to imagine the, uh, the announcer. And he's off. I'm not familiar enough with the announcements <laughs> to, to get it, so excuse me. But. What a fun idea. Well, um, if we're thinking about stuff like that, can you imagine what professional researchers are contemplating? Yes and no. I mean, yeah, I, I cannot imagine what they're contemplating. I think often they're not as interested in those sorts of commercial, sure. you know, and th that takes researchers figure out some technology and then entrepreneurs or, you know, someone comes in and it's like, let's stage a race of eight secretariats. But I'm sure they've got some other ideas up their sleeves, the researchers, that we can't even begin to imagine. Well, let's just hope that what they don't do is that at the end of uh, the Donald Sutherland invasion of the body snatchers where the, the little dog has the human face on it, that we don't want. I no. think we can all agree that that we don't want. I think I prefer dog faces. I've been talking with Emily Anthes, author of Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beasts. It's one of the books in the new Scientific American Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux series. To see other titles in the series, such as Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths and Daniel Shamovitz's What a Plant Knows, visit www.books.scientificamerican.com. When you go there, you'll also see our new line of e-books available in Kindle, Nook, or Apple iBooks formats. We'll be back right after this word from Carrie Smith at The Nature Podcast.
On this week's Nature podcast, the future of scientific publishing, crystallography without the crystals, and how carbon dioxide escapes from the deep ocean. Just go to www.nature.com slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Till next time, get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find Calla Cofield's piece celebrating the 100th anniversary of the birth of the great mathematician Paul Erdos. The article is titled, An Arbitrary Number of Years Since Mathematician Paul Erdos's Birth. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.